Welcome to FinCast. I'm Juan Zarati. On this episode, the Taliban takeover and the effects on Afghanistan. What is next for sanctions, the Afghan economy, and new financial crimes risks? With me are Danny Glazer, Gail Fuller, and Eric Lorber. Why isn't the administration moving harder on sanctions? There's more of a military solution to this than most terrorist financing issues. Organizational structures as a key component for helping to develop confidence. White nights of illicit finance are a myth. They don't really exist. It's a direct attack on the on the money laundering vulnerability. President Putin's reaction to any of these allegations in the past has been prove it. Welcome back to FinCast. Very happy to have you back and to have this discussion with Danny Glazer, Gail Fuller, and Eric Lorber on what happens now that the Taliban has taken over uh, Afghanistan, occupied Kabul, U.S. and NATO forces have withdrawn, the U.S. president has declared an end to the war in Afghanistan. But the withdrawal is not the end of the story, of course, and the aftermath has many dimensions, one of which is how the U.S., the EU, the international community addresses an Afghan country that is controlled by a sanctioned group, the Taliban, what happens to the Afghan economy, and how we should be thinking about financial crimes risks in that environment. There's no better experts than Danny Gale and Eric to speak to these issues, senior members of K2 Integrity, former senior treasury officials. They've been in the trenches They've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of terrorist financing and sanctions, and their expertise will be helpful to all of us. Welcome, guys. Uh, thank you for joining. Thanks, Juan. It's good to be here. Thanks, Juan. Thank you. Danny, let's start with you. You, know, you had years of experience as the Assistant Secretary for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes. You saw the ISIS takeover of territory and, and cities and financial institutions in Iraq and Syria. Can you speak to the, the initial steps that the U.S. Treasury took as it was clear that the Taliban was going to take over Kabul and institutions in that city? Well, the most important step that the, that the U.S. Treasury took was freezing the Afghan government's reserves that are held in the United States, which uh, amount in, in the billions of dollars. I've heard, I've heard estimates in the seven to nine billion dollar range probably uh, much if not most of that is 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 held at the at New York Federal Reserve those funds are are held by the by the Afghan government um in trust for the uh, Afghan people and so it makes perfect sense and is, is is frankly the most responsible thing that the US government could have done when there's questions about you know if there's a legitimate government uh, whether there's any government at all uh, whether there is a competent central bank and central bank governor that are that are well placed to to manage those funds, if there is if there is not, we certainly don't want to see those funds dissipated by either an illegitimate government or 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 a, a central bank that's not that's not capable of managing the funds. So the first step that the treasury took uh, was to, was to freeze those funds pending some sort of resolution of of who the uh, legitimate government of Afghanistan is and. Similar steps were taken by by countries around the world. Uh, the next step uh, in that process is obviously a political one, where there needs to be some sort of determination made as to who the appropriate party is uh, to you know, to have control uh, over those over those assets. 
Yeah, so enormous questions about control and access. And Danny, you, you've seen this in other contexts, of course, and the, the freezing of, of the reserves becomes a, a political and diplomatic tool as well. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what the U.S. government is, is looking for now, or if it's not what it should be looking for, is leverage uh, over, over the Taliban so that it could engage in some sort of uh, political or diplomatic negotiation with them uh, to arrive at a settlement uh, that is at, least, is at least acceptable to us. And in order to get to that, the U.S. government is going to need, is going to need leverage. That's what uh, jurisdictional sanctions provide whether it's in the context of, of Iran or in the context of North Korea or another context, they provide some amount of, of leverage to the diplomats at the negotiating table. And uh, certainly control over the country's reserves uh, is, is a huge bargaining chip. Danny mentioned sanctions. I want to make sure the listeners have a good sort of reference point state of play with respect to existing sanctions as they are applied by the U.S., the EU, and the U.N., the great expert Eric Lorber uh, to, to walk us through that. Eric, can you talk to the audience about the sanctions regime in place and, and what now applies, given that the Taliban seems to be in control of most of the, the country? Uh, I think listeners know that there's, there's resistance still underway in the Panjshir Valley, uh, so it's not total control, but they certainly have control of Kabul and all the major cities. Take us through the sanctions regime. Thanks, Juan. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll say up front that the sanctions regime that's currently applied to Afghanistan is, is quite complicated. And there are a series of questions about the scope of that regime uh, that, in effect, remain to be clarified. And until they are clarified, present, present real, real risk of running afoul of, of the current programs. So I kind of think of the sanctions regimes that are currently uh, applied to Afghanistan in sort of two buckets or along two axes. The first uh, axis relates to the entities that are actually imposing the sanctions, so the authorities themselves. And here you mentioned the three, uh, which are most notable, the United States, the UN, and the European Union. And each have uh, different types of sanctions that they employ, whether they're list-based or, in the case of the United States, a list-based program that, that's substantial and, and quite, quite expansive. Um, the second axis that I like to think about the sanctions risk on is sort of how the different types of sanctions break down. And I, I count at least four. So for example, there are sanctions on, um, on entities in Afghanistan. The Taliban, for example, um, is a, uh, a 13.224 designated entity here in the United States, especially designated global terrorist. There are individual members of the Taliban um, who are designated either for terrorist financing um, or for, for other uh, malign activities. Um, there are other groups uh, throughout Afghanistan that may not be Taliban that are also designated or also present sanctions risks. We heard about one of these groups just a few days ago, um, ISIS-K, uh, when they took credit for the attack um, that killed 13 U.S. service members at the Kabul airport. And then there's an entirely different basket or bucket of sanctions risks related to regional actors. So, for example, there was a report, a news report from just a few days ago that Iran had begun sending a significant amount of fuel to, to Afghanistan in exchange, for example, for currency, which, of course, could potentially implicate uh, U.S. secondary sanctions on energy uh, transactions in the energy sector um, of the Iranian economy. So a different program altogether. So there very much is a, a, a patchwork or a, a sort of a, an interlaced quilt of sanctions authorities that exist 
The one I do want to call attention to in particular, um, which is uh, fairly complex and, and requires some clarity from U.S. enforcement and regulatory authorities, relates to the fact that the Taliban is now, um, for all intents and purposes, the entity which controls the government of Afghanistan. And that raises this core question of, well, does that mean, because the Taliban itself has designated, that the government of Afghanistan itself is designated so that all of the entities within that government, the agencies, the, the bureaus, the governmental organs, are they also considered to be blocked persons? And the short answer to that, frankly, from a regulatory perspective, is it's not entirely clear. There are certain programs that the United States, uh, sanctions programs that the United States has administered, such as Venezuela, where the U.S. has actually come out with an executive order. I think it was uh, 13884 that designated and blocked the government of Venezuela. The U.S. government has not yet done that here, and they're probably waiting to see how the Taliban acts now that it is in power. But from a regulatory risk perspective, it's not clear whether or not if, for example, you're conducting a transaction with, let's just say, the Ministry of the Interior or the government of Afghanistan now, whether or not that entity is actually sanctioned or not. So there's a lot of risk and a lack of real clarity about what is and is not permissible right now when it comes to sanctions in Afghanistan. Eric, thank you for that. And you raise a critical point, question of how the Taliban is considered or recognized, what their authority looks like is a, is a fundamental question for the international community writ large from a political and diplomatic perspective, but it has those direct sanctions implications that, that you just mentioned. I just note for, for listeners, um, you know, you have the resistance in the Panjshir Valley. One of the resistance leaders is Amrullah Saleh, who was a, a senior vice president in the former government. Uh, he's proclaiming himself as the acting president pursuant to the, to the you know, existing Afghan constitution. So there's a there's a, an interesting question uh, about authority and and whether or not uh, the Taliban takeover will be recognized in various forms. And so complicated questions, no doubt, for the international community. Different answers, no doubt, from different countries coming in the international system. China and Russia will view this differently, clearly, than the U.S. and Europe, uh, perhaps. And, and so that has sanctions implications. Eric, thank you, Gail. Let's turn to you because you you now spend a ton of your time at K2 Integrity looking at risk, risk assessments, risk factors for jurisdictions, institutions. Just taking a step back, you know, what does Afghanistan look like? Is this kind of the worst of all worlds or, you know, what, what, is, what is the risk assessment of Afghanistan in, in the Taliban takeover context look like? Thanks, Juan. Um, you know, it's it's honestly hard to even know where to start with this kind of a question, because I think as it's been made clear throughout our conversation so far, there's so much that's still uncertain. But uncertainty is in and of itself a, a, a type of risk or a source of risk. Um, so that's first and foremost, really. Things are changing really rapidly. And while we can look back to what Afghanistan looked like the last time the Taliban was in charge, history isn't always necessarily the best indicator for future actions. And I think the most fundamental thing from a risk perspective is the Taliban and how they're going to behave um, now that they are, for all intents and purposes, in charge of the government of Afghanistan. And that means, you know, it's huge. It's, it's a, an entity that we've long regarded as an adversary and a source of illicit finance risk. Now in the position of essentially ruling a country and being in the position to take control over institutions that are meant to combat illicit finance. 
Uh, so it's a lot of wait and see on the risk front to see how that plays out. Um, you know, more generally and broadly, uh, terrorist financing, of course, is a top type of illicit finance risk that everyone needs to be concerned about and informed about. Um, again, the Taliban itself and through its ties to the Haqqani network and to Al-Qaeda are concerns in that regard, as is ISIS-K, which Eric raised earlier. Other illicit financing risks that we've historically thought about in the context of Afghanistan relate to things as diverse as, you know, drug trafficking, uh, synthetic drug production increasingly, illegal mining. Uh, and these are really all areas that the Taliban and other illicit groups have used in the past as sources of revenue and are still, you know, things that are of concern. Uh, but circling back to kind of Taliban control, uh, you know, thinking through what they're going to do with these key institutions that were created to combat illicit finance is something that's a real area to think about. Those types of institutions, for example, you know, right before we started taping, I was looking on the Egmont Group's website and saw that the Afghan FIU is still technically a part of the Egmont Group. And in other countries, we've seen financial intelligence units really wielded as political tools in a way that can be very damaging and really troubling. Um, so, you know, there's a big, big open question about how they're going to use these instruments that are now at their disposal. And so for anyone who's trying to deal with and navigate these risks, whether it's a financial institution or a non-governmental organization, I think at this point, the most important thing is to acknowledge the uncertainty and identify sort of the sources of uncertainty and to really set up channels for ensuring that you stay up to date with the changing environment, whether that's through setting up your own sort of analytic functions or identifying what are the trusted news sources that you can go to from third parties and following really the personnel changes within the government, who's being installed in what positions, what are the key positions that matter to the type of the work that you're doing in the country or that you hope to continue doing in the country and who are the people being put in those positions. So it's a, it's a complicated question, uh, only further complicated by all the uncertainty one. Yeah, Gail, really, really well put. You know, you raised two interesting points I want to kind of follow up with you on. You know, one is this sort of challenge and question of authority and institutions, which, which Eric started, started us down. And you've seen, and I think th this is going to start to look like the Venezuela context, where you have, you know, dueling claims to authority over embassies and institutions and other things that sit outside of Afghanistan uh, that purportedly represent the Afghan government, whether it's the Taliban side now or the, the old government under uh, President Ghani. Um, so that's, that's an interesting dynamic. And to your point about watching personnel moves and institutional moves, that's really important. The second has to do with your point about 2021 isn't 2001, right? And you know, that, that, has, that has very you know, different implications. But one of the interesting implications is you know, the Taliban and the Afghan economy now fall under this specter of sanctions and suspicion um, in a very different risk environment. You know, the, the international community is talking about ESG principles. Uh, meanwhile, you've got the Taliban taking over uh, with, with fundamental questions about respect for human rights and other things. So the, the, the risk landscape and the discussion around risk and standards has changed dramatically over the last 20 years. Can you speak to that as well? Because I, just, I think that's important. We often have these discussions around uh, these these rogue regimes or these these problematic issues, and people don't realize that the the underlying risk landscape has changed over time. 
Yeah, definitely, Juan. I mean, I think it's the underlying risk landscape has changed, but also the prioritization of the ways that people think about risk is changing. Um, you brought up a great point with the ESG environment. Um, this is something that, you know, never used to be on the radar in the way that it is right now. And, you know, it has real significance for any interactions by a commercial actor in a country like Afghanistan, where, as you said, there are fundamental questions about human rights um, and also where there are questions about things like you know, there's been a history of illegal mining in Afghanistan as well that's been environmentally damaging. And there are questions about that as well. So this is something that, you know, in addition to all of the other risks we've already talked about, sanctions risks, money laundering risk, um, terrorist financing risks, is something that needs to be considered for anyone who wants to continue doing any form of business in Afghanistan is this full spectrum of risks that gets beyond the traditional illicit finance and beyond the corruption related risks and into are there environmental issues? Are there, you know, human rights issues? And this is another area where there's also, you know, I think you were alluding to before, potentially a pretty different calculus for different players in the world. Um, ESG has become very much a buzzword and something that countries in the West care about. Um, I'm a little less certain if there's much momentum behind ESG initiatives uh, amongst Chinese companies, for example. Um, so that's another area where there could be a bit of a split in terms of willingness to engage with the regime as well. Thanks, Gil. Danny, I want to come back to you because um, you have such deep experience in looking at these changing landscapes and environments where terrorist groups, for example, ISIS uh, in Iraq, actually begin to control territory, control economies, you know, run, run governments. You sat right next to, you know, Department of Defense officials and and strategizers to target ISIS and, and terrorist financing. I, I bet the listeners would be very interested on your, in your take on what happens to the terrorist financing campaign now uh, in light of what's happened in Afghanistan. You know, what does targeting look like? Uh, you've got the Taliban, you've got Al-Qaeda, you've got the Haqqani Network, you've got ISIS-K. Um, obviously, it gets more complicated, but, but what does this look like next? Well, Juan, I, I don't really know that our terrorist financing efforts uh, change all that much with respect to Afghanistan. So in Afghanistan, you have a situation now where, where the Taliban, which, which is a terrorist organization until someone informs, informs us otherwise, uh, controls a, a large amount of territory and acts in a governmental or quasi-governmental capacity. There's a couple of different examples in recent years that we could look to. Uh, uh, we could look to Gaza, where, where Hamas uh, plays uh, uh, that sort of role, or we could look uh, to Iraq, where, where, where ISIS uh, played a, a similar sort of role. The, 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 but there's fundamental differences as well. In the case of, in the case of, of Gaza and the case of, of, of ISIS, um, in, in the case of Gaza, there were two countries that bordered on Gaza, Israel and Egypt, neither of whom are particularly sympathetic to Hamas. So they're in a position to squeeze that territory and, 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 and play a big role in ensuring uh, that terrorist financing uh, funds do not, do not flow into or out of those, the, that jurisdiction. Likewise, in the case of ISIS, they were surrounded by countries that were not uh, sympathetic uh, to their cause. Uh, because really nobody was particularly sympathetic to their cause, so uh, it was it was relatively straightforward in terms of in terms of isolating them. And then there was a cat and mouse game to be played uh, to try to really squeeze. But from a from a, from a broader perspective, 
uh, they were surrounded by countries uh, which were prepared uh, to participate in an effort in an effort to uh, prevent uh, funds from coming in or or going out. Afghanistan, it remains to be seen what's what's going to be the case. As has been mentioned uh, several you know several times, uh, what is going to be the status of the Taliban uh, with respect to the rest of the international community? What's going to be uh, the status of the Afghan government and 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 the Afghan financial system with respect to the rest of the international community? Uh, are there significant uh, countries and, uh, and neighbors who are going to either recognize the Taliban or at least uh, uh, be willing to work with them? Uh, China, Russia, uh, Pakistan. Uh, you know, these there's there's going to be much uh, more uh, open flow of funds into and out of Afghanistan. Um, than uh, than in the case of Gaza or or the or the territory controlled by ISIS. As a result, I think we fall back on our normal uh, counter-terrorist financing um, efforts. We look for donors. You know, we we work with countries uh, who could be the source of financing going in. Uh, we work with financial institutions and other financial service providers to make sure uh, that they're on the alert uh, with respect to funds going in um, and out. Uh, you know all all of the uh, all of the old-fashioned um, methodologies uh, that we used are are going to need to continue to be uh, employed with respect to Afghanistan. And uh, as Gail was saying when she was talking about risk, I don't think that's going to be uh, challenging with respect to the financial community. I mean, Afghanistan is is the poster child for risk in almost every respect. Uh, so if you're if you're doing business with Afghanistan um, in any capacity uh, and aren't applying the highest highest levels of extreme due diligence, then then you're then you're obviously being uh, being negligent. So you know I, I think that that's how it's how it's going to go. I mean, with respect to the particular groups um, in Afghanistan, it's not clear to me what their financial networks are, what their financial strength is. The Taliban says that they're not sympathetic to Al Qaeda. They say they're not sympathetic to ISIS K. ISIS K has been in the news um, a lot for obvious reasons over the past couple of weeks, but it's not clear to me what their capabilities are. They managed to cause a lot of damage by, uh, you know, being able to sneak, uh, you know, a few operatives past a, a Taliban checkpoint in in a chaotic situation in Kabul. Does that mean that they really are a, a, a an organization that that is capable? Of projecting terrorist attacks in in much more complex scenarios, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know um, who's going to be operating um, within uh, within Afghanistan under Taliban rule and able to uh, you know and and able to have capabilities that uh, allow them to project uh, attacks and project threats and risks outside you know of the of a very narrow region. So that's all going to be. We'll all just have to see that. And have a you know, have a strategy that's that's flexible and that can adjust to what I imagine is going to be a very changing, uh, a very uh, fluid set of circumstances and a very fluid set of uh, of information that we have to rely on. Thank you, Danny. And I I do think that you know with with the embassy closed, the bases closed, the sort of allied actors scattered, it, it gets harder to have that visibility. To your point, what's actually transpiring. And especially on the on the terrorist financing side, as the Taliban uh, begins to expand its control of the economy or institutions, et cetera. But it, so it's it, I, I think it's going to get harder uh, to to, you know, track and to forecast where this is headed. But to your point, 
we've we've got a tool toolkit and a game plan that we've applied before that can be applied here. I just think it's harder now that we're sitting on the outside versus sitting on the inside. Eric, let me ask you this. What happens with, you know, anytime we, we, we're talking about a sanctions regime um, in conditions where there's a need for humanitarian goods to get in, medical supplies, there's um, always a debate about whether or not sanctions should be eased, lifted, what kinds of uh, licenses, licenses should apply. You know, what's, what's next in terms of what may come on the humanitarian exemption side? Um, and how, how are institutions like Tolo TV and American University, if it continues to operate in any form, you know, how, how do those institutions continue to operate given the cloud of risk that, that Danny and Gail described so, so neatly and under the sanctions regime that you explained earlier? Thanks, Juan. Um, yeah, it's a really great question. And we've seen a lot of, um, of movement by humanitarian organizations to try to figure out just exactly how they continue to get aid into the country without running afoul of sanctions. You know, to give a little bit of background, uh, most U.S. sanctions programs that cover jurisdictions, right? So the Iran program, for example, um, the Cuba program, have carve-outs for, for humanitarian goods um, and services to be delivered. So they're you know, licenses or exemptions. One of the really challenging things about the Taliban and Afghanistan is, going back to something I mentioned earlier, the Taliban's designated under 13224 as a specially designated global terrorist. That executive order does not have a humanitarian carve-out built into it, meaning uh, if you were a humanitarian organization and you ended up transacting with the Taliban, uh, you could potentially be liable uh, for an enforcement action from OFAC. So it's a very challenging situation to be in. And the only additional complicating factor I'll say, which is, is quite notable on this one, is not only is there no humanitarian exception for this executive order, but the executive order also carries secondary sanctions uh, implications. So that was a change made, I believe it was in 2019 where foreign financial institutions that knowingly conduct significant transactions with uh, 13224 entities um, are subject to secondary sanctions. So there's a lot of risk um, for, for humanitarian transactions and for humanitarian groups and those that are banking them for doing business in Afghanistan right now, going back to, to Danny's comment about the need to do really extensive due diligence. Um, with that being said, you know, also going back to Danny's comment, we do have a toolkit to deal with this. Uh, and while there um, haven't been any uh, what are called general licenses that are that have uh, that have been put into place yet um, for the program, we have heard from public reporting that OFAC has moved very quickly to issue a series of specific licenses for humanitarian organizations to continue to uh, provide um, uh, delivery of humanitarian goods into the country. I expect this um, to continue. I expect OFAC to respond quickly and provide these licenses because, um, as we've all mentioned, the humanitarian needs of the country are, are quite substantial, um, and, and it, those needs, frankly, need to be met for the upkeep of the, you know, for the population, the health and the well-being of the population. So I expect OFAC to continue to issue these types of licenses. What I don't know is whether or not they would actually put out um, what's called a, a general license, so a more blanket authorization for humanitarian um, entities, uh, organizations to provide goods and services. My guess is that they probably don't, 
Um, but I think they can do most of the activity they need to do um, using the specific license mechanism that, they, that they've already uh, apparently uh, utilized. Thanks, Eric. Uh, Gail, let me ask you this, because Eric alluded to it and you did earlier as well. You know, um, other countries' sensitivities to risk, uh, sensitivity to sanctions, often you've seen in other sanctions regime, regimes a lot of discussion from the Chinese government, the Russian government, other actors about doing business with sanctioned entities, but really not following through and, and there being real risk sensitivity to direct and indirect sanctions and risks attached to it. Can you speak to the audience about you know, how you've seen Chinese, Russian, other actors deal with sanctioned parties and, and the risks attached to that? Uh, because that may be instructive to to watch as as everyone grapples with dealing with with Taliban controlled Afghanistan. I think that you know we have seen in the past a lot of rumblings about some you know geopolitical rival nations saying that they're wanting to get around sanctions or wanting to disregard sanctions, but we haven't really seen that happening in you know an, an effective large scale way. And a lot of it ends up seeming a little bit more like talk than reality. Um, and the part part of the reason behind that is simply that they're still reliant at this point on the U.S. financial system and access to the U.S. financial system for international trade to a large extent, which makes them open to sanctions related penalties. So I think we see more bark than bite to a certain extent. Um, you know, there are cases where, you know, smaller financial institutions are used or where complex networks are set up to evade sanctions. Um, but in terms of really sort of state sponsored efforts to ignore sanctions, it hasn't been as, you know, extreme in reality as it would be portrayed in rhetoric from those countries, I think. Yeah. Eric, did you want to add anything on that? Yeah, I do want to weigh in on that because I think that there's, you know, a core difference, for example, between Afghanistan and sanctions uh, authorities that are imposed on Afghanistan versus another jurisdiction like Cuba, for example. And that that difference is the Taliban is subject to UN Security Council resolutions and sanctions. So it's one thing for China or Russia or you know other countries to sort of intentionally work around uh, a US sanctions uh, umbrella or US sanctions program. It's another thing for them to you know, vote to approve um, UN Security Council resolutions that impose sanctions on the Taliban and then actively try to work around what they have already uh, agreed to uh, in the Security Council. So that's not to say that they they may that they won't do it at all. Um, there have been instances, we've seen instances in other, other situations, North Korea, for example, where they do sort of skirt the rules to an extent. But I do think that there's a there's a substantial difference between um, trying to get around a U.S. only program versus trying to get around what's a, a U.N. Um, sponsored program that they themselves signed up to. Right. And I think the layers of sanctions and, and the different both group related, uh, conduct related, even jurisdictional related overlap here is um, is significant. So it's a t- it's a tangled web of sanctions exposure, potentially. Danny, let, uh, let me turn to you. We're, we're in the closing minutes here. I want to ask you. Gail and Eric to reflect on kind of the aftermath of Afghanistan through the lens of your former position at the Treasury. You as Assistant Secretary at, at TFI for terrorist financing. Gail, your role at the Office of Intelligence and Analysis. Eric, your role as a senior advisor to the Undersecretary for TFI. I 
I ask you each, what what would you be thinking about, worried about, concentrating on if you were in your former seat at this point? Well, again, Juan, what I would be focused on if I were in my former seat is what I opened up with. And that is how do we help the U.S. government get as much leverage as possible over the Taliban so that it can come to some sort of negotiated diplomatic status quo uh, that's acceptable to the United States and that uh, does the most that we can do to protect uh, the uh, Afghans who remain within Afghanistan, who who need our protection, um, and that we can uh, try to uh, have a uh, an Afghan government that complies with international standards and norms uh, and expectations as much as possible. And in order to do that, we need leverage. And that's what, as I said earlier, country uh, sanctions programs are, are, are intended to do. That's what uh, financial uh, and economic uh, uh, pressure strategies um, are intended to do. It's not about finding a particular individual or group uh, somewhere in Afghanistan that that is intending you know to to launch a terrorist attack of course we should be doing that and I assume we are doing that uh, but it's about um, more broadly uh, trying to get economic uh, and financial leverage in order to advance political and diplomatic um, ends that's where I think that we are right now as a as, as a country with respect to Afghanistan um, and that's what I think that the Treasury Department um, and the rest of the U.S. government should be pursuing on the financial and economic pressure side. Fascinating. Thank you, Danny. Gail, what would you be worried about or thinking about? Thanks, Juan. So, I mean, I think I would mostly be worried if I were in my old seat about what you and Danny were talking about before. You know, how do you get good information with the withdrawal of the United States? That's obviously going to affect our ability to get good information about what's going on on the ground and to provide you know, corresponding information about the risks that we've been talking about and how they're manifesting about um, threats to national security and to provide the kind of information that would inform and arm people in the policymaking community like Danny used to be to make the types of decisions and to you know, shape the type of strategy that Danny was just talking about. Thanks, Gail. Uh, great, great points. Eric, what would you be looking at? Thanks, Juan. Um, I touched on this a little bit before, but uh, in my mind, I think providing clarity um, to the private sector and to the NGO community would be one of uh, the most important things to do here. And, you know, clarity, as I was mentioning, in the form of, of specific licenses that authorize certain activity, but also clarity more broadly about just what is and is not prohibited within, uh, within Afghanistan. Now. So can you, for example, do business with with the government of Afghanistan, given given the fact that it is now at least de facto controlled by the Taliban, and figuring out just what that uh, what that clarity looks like and just what the answers to that are, I think is going to be really important. Um, and I'm sure, you know, candidly, I'm sure the, the good folks at, at Treasury are working on this and thinking this through. But I do think it also, to an extent, has to build off some of the questions and the comments uh, that Danny noted, where there has to be sort of a political determination as to whether or not and to what extent we want to put additional pressure on the Taliban. And if, for example, we think, well, we want to sort of really turn the screws and ramp up the pressure if we don't like the way that they're acting, then maybe we, you know, come down on clarity that the government of Afghanistan is a blocked entity as long as the Taliban is in control. Or maybe we decide we want to go the other way with it. 
and, and make a determination that no, they're not in fact a blocked person or a blocked entity. So I do think that there's this kind of outstanding political determination that has to be made uh, before you'll see that real regulatory clarity that I think a lot of folks in the market are, are clamoring for. Fascinating. I, I'm going to throw um, my thoughts in on this. Just I can't help myself, um, given given former Treasury role and, and then role at the White House. I would agree with everything you, you all have said. I, I think what I would be most worried about, especially from the, the DNSA role, would be looking at how the Taliban takeover has affected the, the wind and the sails for the global jihadi movement and doing everything possible with Treasury and, and other parts of the government to make sure that the wind and the sails doesn't facilitate the ability of, of other global networks to uh, proliferate, to expand their operations, to give life to their broader global ambitions, you know, making sure that to the extent possible, uh, what happens in Afghanistan stays in Afghanistan, right? And that is going to be very hard to do, but that's that would be, I think, job number one from a counterterrorism perspective, reflecting then down into the terrorist financing domain. But there's a lot more to be uh, thinking about, talking about. We're going to come back to this issue, no doubt. We're in the very early days of the aftermath of the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, and I, I can't imagine Again, three better people to talk about these issues at this stage than Danny, Gail, and Eric. So thank you for joining the three of you. Uh, great insights. That's it for this episode of FinCast. There's much more on the Afghan aftermath. We'll follow it and track it. Likely have another FinCast soon. Until the next episode, thank you very much. Stay safe and well. This is Juan Zarati for FinCast. Thank you for listening to FinCast. We hope you join us for future episodes. Have a great day.